1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people
2: today.
0: Can me? Can
2: you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not you're breaking off quite badly. Hello and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I've forgotten. I have too. Our guest on the lock-in today, and what a pity we're not allowed a proper lock-in in in lockdown, is a soldier. Justin Maciejewski was the Army's Director of Combat and before that commanded his battalion of the Rifles in Iraq. After falling among thieves in management consultancy, he escaped to become what he is now, the Director-General of the National Army Museum. We're going to talk about how important the Army is to this country's idea of itself, what do you think, Justin?
1: Well, I think the um, in many respects, the, the army is one of those institutions that helped create Britain. I mean, after the civil wars, after the restoration, uh, when the army was properly established, and then after the union of the crowns um, and the union of the, Scotland and England, the, the, the British army emerges as an institution that really binds the union together. And so much of our regional identity and our national identity is sort of tied up with with our army. Um, it, it really is an institution that that people don't often realise it, but it sort of lies uh, at the soul of,
2: of, of our sense of who we are. And yet it is tiny now by comparison with what it has been, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the army is now, you know, under
1: 100,000. And that's smaller than the uh, the German army was allowed to be after the First World War under the very strict uh, conditions of the Versailles Treaty. So the British army now is is really a very small army in, in, in global terms. And even in European terms, it's, it's probably number five or six uh, within Europe. Um, so it's a very small army, but it's obviously a very, it's a professional army and is very highly regarded. But um, uh, it is very small. Uh, you know, in the last 30, 30 years, it's, it's shrunk by 50% pretty well from the size it was when I first joined. And you can only get to 100,000, can't you, by including all the reserves? Uh, that, that's correct. Um, under the current uh, way the army is calculating its size uh, is by putting the, the part-time reserve soldiers, if you like, on top of their regular full-time manpower. So if you add the reserve, um, the army reserve, to the regular
2: army, you get just over 100,000. But that is pretty pathetic, isn't it, by comparison with what it used to be? Well,
1: it's certainly much, it's much, it's much smaller, I mean, and, um, you know, we are a member of the United Nations Security Council, and that puts obligations on the United Kingdom to be able to sort of lead in, in certain international community efforts, which may well require the deployment of, of, arm, of army manpower to, uh, on campaigns and to sustain that over a number of years. And so I'm not sure I'd use the word pathetic uh, because it's still it's still a very effective small army. But but these numbers are are really small. And for a country that uh, wants to be on the Security Council, it it is a very small army. And I would say it's in terms of size um, as a historian um, and as a veteran um, and speaking very much in a personal capacity. Um, it, it's verging uh, on, on it pushes the bounds of credibility. But it's well-trained, isn't it? It is really well-trained. I mean, that's why I would never use the word pathetic about the British Army. It is incredibly well-trained. Uh, the individuals in the army are very well-trained. Um, and training really has been one of the things the British Army has been extremely good at for hundreds of years. I mean, if you go back to the way that Sir John Moore drilled his infantry down at Shorncliffe. Uh, you know, when there was a fear of French invasion, if you look at the way the British infantry was drilled and trained uh, in the Peninsular War uh, by Wellington and, and his officers, if you look at the way the infantry, uh, you know, trained in its in its marksmanship in the late nineteenth century and was able to kind of bring the German army to a shuddering halt at the Battle of the Marne in nineteen fourteen, all of this was down to really good training the British army throughout its history has taken training extremely seriously. If you like the craftsmanship of war is something that is at the heart of the DNA of the army. And this has never changed. So even though the army is small, and I would say extremely small for the kind of dangerous world in which we live, um, uh, I, I, di- I think it to some extent makes up for that in the extreme, extremely high standards
2: of training that it, that it has managed to maintain over the, over the, over the years. It's very funny you should mention Sir John Moore because I was lying in bed this morning remembering a poem that I learned when I was at school, prep school. So I suppose I was about 10. So it's 60 years ago. And it was about the burial of Sir John Moore. You know, we buried him dark at the dead of night, the sods with our bayonets turning by the misty moonbeam, struggling light and the lantern dimly burning. And so and so on, it goes on. But so much... kind of associated that with britain and an invincible army yeah
1: i mean this is why i um you're you're absolutely right jeremy i mean i i remember doing the same poem at prep school so obviously it, i mean i'm not sure it's probably still on the syllabus today but it was certainly um it was part of my syllabus as well and i i remember that um, uh, vividly. And actually, when I was uh, in the army uh, commanding a brigade, one of the battalions in the brigade I commanded was the, the Royal Anglians, one of the battalions of the Royal Anglian Regiment. And of course, they have a black patch behind their cap badge because they were the regiment that buried Sir John Moore uh, in the Peninsular War. And so, the, you know, th- this her- these, these stories and this heritage is really uh, very important to the army and its sense of self. But I think more than that, I, I do think. You know, our army is a core part of our national sense of identity and national self-confidence as well. And I and I think that if you look at the last 30 years since the Cold War, you know, successive governments have have cut the army back. They've merged regiments, they've restructured, they've cut the costs. But I think one of the intangible um, things that's happened in that process is the if you like the over time they've eroded. Uh, people's self-confidence in uh, national um, self-confidence that is kind of drawn from the sense that this nation has a great army and and this great army can do amazing things now of course in, in this pandemic we're seeing soldiers deployed on the streets doing testing helping do vaccinations helping organize this huge national effort and people are conscious of that but you know every salami slice Uh, of the army over the last you know 30 years slowly but surely leads leads to an ebbing of the the confidence that we instinctively have in our nation's ability to mobilize military power and use it and I think often people don't realize the sort of longer term consequence of this the confidence that you that you had Jeremy uh, in the army when you learnt that poem back in prep school is is really important and Um, it relies on people having a strong sense of of the army being strong and connected with our history, our heritage
2: and our identity. And that is something that I do worry about. But it is to some extent based on a myth, isn't it? It's based on a myth of unbroken victory. And actually there were lots and lots of defeats. Um,
1: Well, yeah, there are defeats uh, along the way, but I think... um, I mean, I think was, I think it was Warren Buffett, wasn't it, who said that as long as I make more than 50 percent of my decisions um, uh, right, then I'll, I'll be OK. Um, and I think the British Army through history, although it's had defeats, you know, it's it's got more than 50 percent um, of victories under its belt. So way more than 50 percent. So I think the balance is good. I mean, there are very few nations in the world that can genuinely say that their army represents an unbroken unbroken line of service going back to its, its very, found, you know, the foundations of the, of, the, of the modern nation state. And if you think of the restoration in 1660, as, if you like, in being the kind of, the roots of modern Britain, if you like, and the kind of arrangements between the Crown and Parliament, you know, our army has a direct line of continuous service right the way back to that moment, including the regiments that, that were there that day on Blackheath. If you look at Italy, If you look at Spain, if you look at France, if you look at Germany, if you look at the Dutch, the Danes, all of these countries, the Poles, all of these countries at some moment in time have been overrun or have had a sort of year zero experience. And beyond that, a new army is born, whereas our army, I think our army and the army of Sweden are really the only two in Europe that can genuinely say that they are unbroken as institutions. And that would point to the fact that. Although we may have defeats, ultimately we succeed. Otherwise,
2: we would have disappeared. I suggest it points to geography.
1: Geography helps, and the Royal Navy has been a great help in that as well, <laughs> and the Royal Air Force. So we shouldn't airbrush them out of it. But I think, yeah. But I, I do think that you know, as I look at the history of the army, as a great, as a great, you know, you know, as as I get to do as director of the National Army Museum, I, I am struck by this. Overall, this institution has endured and has been successful despite setbacks along the way.
2: Look at, look at something like Island Wana and then the conscious decision immediately afterwards to have, have, have for, uh, award a hatload of Victoria Crosses. In, it implies a consciousness that we need to be seen to be successful. And actually, in Iraq, for example, we ran away. Um, Jamie,
1: let me come back to Iraq uh, separately. I don't want to. I don't want to conflate that. I don't want to conflate that with uh, the Zulu Wars. Um, I mean, one of the the Royal Charter, the National Army Museum, uh, uh, lays down the sort of objects of the museum, and 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 it is to sort of st- research and display the history and traditions of the of our army. And I'm always struck by those two words: history and traditions. Now, uh, the reason I say that is because um, you know you can study the deep history of the of the army and, and unearth lots of uh, areas where the army may have fallen short. And Isandwana was a was a you know was a spectacular failure um, in the field in the Zulu wars. That's history, but traditions are about those stories that you hold on to to underpin your sense of self identity and and self belief. And if you like. Where Rourke's Drift comes in um, and the heroic defense of that, of that small uh, set of buildings by a company of British infantry um, in 1879 is that the story that tells the army is that, you know, when you put us somewhere, we, we hold on, we stand firm. And this story is is latched onto as an iconic story. And that's where traditions come in. So I think sometimes we need to distinguish between history and traditions. The tradition of Rourke's Drift and what it represents to the army and, and the soul of the army is incredibly important. Um, whereas Isandwana is a failure, but is not part of our tradition. Rourke's Drift is part of our tradition. In the same way that in America, the Alamo is a very small little engagement uh, in Texas, but it's iconic for the Americans. And so Rourke's drift sort of fits into that category, and and armies are allowed to have these stories around which they build their sort of folk memories, and and so um, we must not try and be too, uh, I won't say critical, but forensic about some of these traditions um, and these episodes. In terms of Iraq, you know, I was I was there, f- um, you know, on three tours of duty in Iraq, and I don't ever recall running away from from from. Uh,
2: when we pulled out of Basra, we did. The Americans send, were sending more troops and we came Jeremy, home. I mean, I mean think
1: Jeremy, pulling out of Basra is, is something that was was actually um, what we wanted to achieve. We didn't want to hold Basra forever. We didn't want Basra to become Gibraltar. Uh, the, the, at some stage, we were going to pull out. And we we wanted the Iraqis to take back control of their city. And they were keen to do that as well. I was there in 2007 and 2008, when we were handing over the bases to the Iraqis. And I can tell you, Jeremy, they were really enthusiastic to take control of their streets. Now, obviously, there would, the Iraqi army then had difficulty in 2008 in securing their streets uh, in Basra. And then uh, the prime minister at the time in Iraq uh, sent the army down en masse to kind of secure Basra, And the British army at that point was outside Basra and they then went in behind the Iraqi army to support them in the operation called Charge of the Knights. And I was there during that operation. And um, it was it was a spectacular success and it was a success. It was an Iraqi success supported by the British. And I and what I find interesting about this narrative about running away is, you know, we did pull back pull back in 2007 and we left Iraq in 2009. Well, the Americans did the same thing two years later. They, they handed over to the Iraqis as well. And so, you know, they did nothing different from the Brits. And the Americans didn't run away and nor did we. It was a messy handover to a, a nation getting back on its feet. And it's, it's been a difficult journey for the Iraqis. But I don't look back at that campaign and have any regrets on handing over Basra to the Iraqis. And I certainly don't regard it as running away.
2: One of the difficulties in convincing people that that's a sensible way to look at it is that the military experience is so divorced from everyday life now, isn't it? In the days when everybody did national service, everybody understood what wearing a uniform was. And they don't anymore.
1: No, you're right. I mean, I, I, I there are a number of things I really worry about. And, and I, Jeremy, I obviously I'm speaking as a kind of a veteran now. You know, I, I, I run a natural museum, so I have the chance to kind of indulge in, in history a bit um and you know i've got a son who's serving as well so i i have a i have a you know i I, i'm also the parent of a a serving soldier um and i'm not talking in any kind of official capacity at all but one of the things i do really worry about is this sort of disconnection of the army from the sort of the consciousness of of the country and it's not just a function of size i mean it's it, it's, it's also a function of, of language and what seems to have happened, and I think it, this is a long process. it goes probably goes back decades and decades. but I think as armies have got smaller, they and have sort of disconnected um, and if you like, the, the flow of people through the army has, in terms of numbers has reduced, and things like national service you know have come to an end, and the territorial army has has shrunk. So the footprint is much is much smaller and the army is consolidating on these big garrisons. So it's all the smaller barracks in in small towns like Canterbury or Dover or, you know, end up being closed down and consolidating to kind of super bases. The army kind of retreats into a kind of citadel and and it also starts speaking its own language. So it comes to the point where, you know, you you listen on the radio or, or the news and you hear a general being interviewed. And they're speaking a language which, which doesn't really seem to make sense to people. It's, sort of, it's kind of a code language, which the rest of the country doesn't seem to have the encryption for. And so they've ended up speaking a language to, them, to themselves often within the defence establishment. And this further isolates the army from wider society. It's a sort of a plain English issue. I mean, and I, I don't know if you, I mean, you were in journalism for a long time and, and you may have seen this a lot. But I listen now to a lot of serving of senior officers and I've only been out of the army for nearly nine years. But sometimes what they're saying doesn't I can't make sense of it. It doesn't I can't see it. I can't feel it. I can't touch it. The language they use is impenetrable and therefore it's difficult for them to get their message across. And it's difficult to us to communicate with them. I don't know if you recognize any of those issues. But I do.
2: Like, I certainly do. I certainly do. And I must say, I think you're very lucky if you've heard a lot of senior officers talking on the media because they don't tend to do it very often unless they have a particular plan to explain. But they do, they do not. When, when, for example, the army is being cut closer and closer to the bone or the navy is being cut or the air force is being cut, Uh, You don't hear top brass going on and defending their men. Why not? Gosh. I mean, I I think that the
1: the, the sort of reluctance of senior generals to uh, intervene in public debates in a way that, you know, you might hear Cressida Dick, for example, talking about police numbers, or you might hear... Uh, senior police, uh, you know, uh, NHS um, managers talking about resources for the NHS. The, uh, you know, so you do hear public servants engaging in debate, um, particularly in sort of health and and policing and and things like that. But I think there's a, it goes back to our sort of deep history. I think um, there is a real reluctance um, and sort of taboo almost in this country. Of, of senior generals getting involved in public policy debates. And that sort of left to, um, uh, you know, the ministers to, to do. Um, I mean, I I was always struck by how much more open, you know, American generals are with things like num- troop numbers uh, and, and they're prepared to publicly say things, um, particularly when it comes to kind of Senate, you know, committee hearings and that kind of thing. I was always struck by that, you know, when I'm working with Americans. Um, I, I think there's a there's a kind of long-standing taboo um, about generals doing this publicly, but I think it's now got to the point. Going back to your previous question about the army being increasingly kind of smaller and disconnected, is that this does need to change because if our, if our generals can't engage the public in debate as to the relevance and importance of things like the size of the army then it's, it's gonna be very difficult for the army to make its case uh, to the public, who of course end up voting for our elected uh, politicians. And so I do think that this kind of tradition, if you like, of generals remaining silent um, is something that is now really damaging our ability to debate the importance of our national defense and, and our army. And, and so it really worries me actually. And the sort of silence of, of generals on the public's on the public in the public sphere it um, uh, is is a cause of real for me as a veteran and and as someone who cares about defense of the country and and and, and reflects on the history of the army as my day job I really I, it does really really trouble me and and i I, I don't quite know how one unlocks this but um, I do think it needs to be unlocked because the other thing that we also need to acknowledge is that in the last twenty years, you know, the Ministry of Defence has been served by a sort of a stream of short-term secretaries of state who never there, are never there for more than eighteen months, and some yeah. of the issues they need to grapple with are extremely complicated. You know, and and I, so you've got this sort of churn of politicians through the Ministry of Defence, um, um, very at very high rate high rates, and then you've got a sort of silent s- senior officer corps. and and the combination of those two is is not good for public debate.
2: Is it because, do you think, we never had a standing army? Generals are just accustomed to doing as they're told. Um, I
1: think that... Um, it's, a good, it's a really good question, that. I, I think that, um, if you think about the history of the British Army, so often it's been a long way from home. I mean, what I find fascinating about the history of the army, Jeremy, is that is that really the army grew up to to basically serve abroad since you know since the sort of early 18th century so if you look at the history of the army most of its most of the army most of the time has served you know in south asia in, in you know in the indian empire as was in africa in north america in the caribbean uh, and for you know and, and other places and of course also in europe you know in 1947 when when the, the army pulled out of india most of that army ended up in Germany until a few years ago. And so we find ourselves, even though we've got a shrinking army, we find ourselves building barracks in England because for the first time we're bringing soldiers back to England um, where they've been abroad for hundreds of years, basically, um, if, you, if you trace it back. And so I think perhaps one of the things historically that has, has shaped sort of generals' attitudes to this is that they're actually used to serving away from home. You know, commanding divisions in Germany or commanding garrisons in, in India or commanding detachments in, in, you know, on campaigns in the Balkans or in, in Africa. And therefore, they're not in the kind of swim of things in Whitehall. Uh, they, you know, there are Whitehall warriors, but the majority of the army are, are those that are out in the field. And of course, the majority of people who end up running the army are people who've earned their spurs commanding soldiers in Germany. Or in Basra, or in Afghanistan, or in or, or in other places, and therefore the people who end up at the top of the army are often not always, but often the ones who are least comfortable with the sort of the, the Whitehall environment. And we see that with things like people like Montgomery and with Slim, you know, after the Second World War, they were very uncomfortable in in Whitehall, um, even though they had kind of you know reached the, the you know the sort of the pinnacle of their of their army careers. And I wonder if that is a factor in the reluctance of generals to kind of enter debate. In terms of generals being told what to do, I think historically British generals have been quite good at interpreting the direction they've been given and kind of making sense of it on the ground with the resources they have at their disposal. So I think the pragmatism of British generals through history is one of the real strengths that we have. You know, we don't wait for written instructions. We do get on and do things.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: But in a democracy, the army should just shut up and do as it's told, shouldn't it? Well,
1: I mean, it goes back uh, to, to I, I think, I mean, the army has never threatened democracy. I mean that that that's and that's again one of the one of the one of the wonderful things about the British Army is it's just been this rock solid, uh, you know, support to the, the nation uh, through all its you know decisions, democratic decisions through through history. I mean, the army has never been or very rarely been a political factor in Britain. I mean, there are occasions when it has been, you know, the Curra mutiny would be one, I suppose, but but historically, the British Army has been very good at sort of not getting entangled uh in politics and but does that mean the army should shut up no i i don't i think in a healthy democracy the role the army is able to explain its role and its relevance and i think that that is again back to a previous question i think that is one of the things which you know the army has has not been so good at doing in the last sort of 50 years um is really being in the public debate without interfering in politics if that makes sense and i think there is a distinction and you know the odd lunchtime talk at rusi doesn't quite cut it really it needs to be a bit more than that
2: they are completely cut off from everyday life aren't they i mean i i i
1: i do i do i mean in one in a one sense jeremy i would reflect on my army, my time in the army and say that I've been much more in touch with the reality of things than a lot of people back in England, so for example, you take your question about Basra and running away well, well I was there and and i and i and i I met Iraqis and I know how much they wanted to get control of their city, for example, you know I spent time in the Balkans, I spent time in africa um I spent time you know um you know, in in lots of scrubby places around the world where you're grappling with very difficult issues, working with local people. And so in some ways, the army is not cut off from reality. It's actually very connected to reality. I mean, think about today, we've got soldiers, you know, in the front line with the NHS, and then next year, they'll be in Afghanistan. Um, And so in in, in many respects, the army is very connected with the ground and what's happening on the ground and often is. But the army is very disconnected from wider public debate and wider public conversations and this is the 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 worry it's this isolation from kind of the dinner tables and in the country it's it's the isolation from you know um from question time on television for example i mean these are these public spaces and and you know whether it's whether it's uh you know you know discussions in village halls about defense or if they if they take place or if it's debates on television or it's podcasts these are the thing the area the spaces that the army is has vacated and and this is really worrying
2: what's the solution
1: i think i mean i I think the solution is that we have to break uh the taboo that says that uh that, that soldiers can only talk about the specific mission that they are being tasked with and that we allow soldiers to to help people understand why we have armies and, and what armies can do ranging from you know helping out in a pandemic to firemen strikes to foot and mouth to defending our island home to helping maintain the balance of power and peace in europe to engaging globally uh with 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 uh, in areas where our national interests are threatened i mean these are the historic roles of the british army back to 1660 and they're still as relevant today as they were then um but we we do need to i think uh we need to create an environment where our our elected politicians are comfortable with serving soldiers being able to enter into appropriate debates in public spaces without being sort of uh, without their scripts being micromanaged
2: would you be comfortable with officers senior officers being told they cannot go any further up the tree because they're politically uncongenial
1: I, I don't know i'm not sure i understand the question jeremy sorry
2: would you would you be comfortable with a politician blocking someone's promotion because they were politically not suitable
1: I mean, I t- to be honest, I I I've I've never I've never come across I've never heard of that. So I, I don't I I mean t- I'll be honest, Jeremy. I mean my my understanding of the history of the army is obviously you know in, in in history we've got you know we have you you can look back at the First World War with Henry Wilson and with with Ale- with with um, with, um, with Hague. And you, you know, you you find the politics and the senior generalship, you know, very intertwined, uh, you know, and very sort of complex in, in that period. And again, in the Second World War, with um, um you know, Churchill, uh, you know, Montgomery, you know, Alexander, you 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 find this kind of in, intermeshing. And again, you probably find that with, uh, uh, you know, when you read the memoirs of people like Lord Guthrie. Um, and and the, during the Tony Blair period, you know, you you get this sort of sense of the relationships at that level. But but I've I've I just you know I've what I've been really struck by is how through history the British Army has broadly been able to choose its own leaders and put them forward. And obviously there are there are decisions. You know, once we created the Chief of Defence Staff in the nineteen sixties with with Mountbatten being the first one, obviously some decisions became slightly more politicised. And when they stopped the rotation between First Sea Lord, Chief of the Air Force and Chief of General Staff, and they used to have a strict rotation of, of CDS. And then I think it was Margaret Thatcher, I think it was under Margaret Thatcher where she said, no, no, I will choose the Chief of Defence Staff. So once you made that, if you like, a choice of the politicians, in other words, which one of these senior generals do I want as the Chief of Defence Staff? Then, of course, you politicise, to some extent, the, the very top appointments. But below, but below that, my understanding and experience and observation through history is that the, is all three services have been really left to select their own top brass. And I think that's, again, one of the strengths of our, of our institutions
2: um, in, in that sense. Can I just ask you one quick thing? What's yeah. been the effect of seeing soldiers on the streets helping with the pandemic? What's the effect? Yeah.
1: Um, Well, Jeremy, can can I ask you what you what you think of that? I mean, I'll I'll I'll, um I'll answer it, but I'd love to know
2: what you think. I'm impressed. I'm impressed by the whole vaccination operation. I think it's been really, really wonderful. I think the government completely fucked up the early stages of the response to the COVID uh, outbreak, but I think in the latter stages they've been really good, and I think. Deployment of the army has been a great thing, and it's been nice to see soldiers in ordinary fatigues just talking as ordinary human beings. That's course, all they are interesting. In the end. It's interesting, uh, Jeremy. You say that because I, 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 I go,
1: um, I, I exercise um, uh, with um, one other person. Um, um, who's got? Who's had um, a, a, no other connection, no connection with the army. Uh, he, he's a Londoner. He grew up in London, and he, he's never he's never had any connection with the army. And he's recently had his vaccination, and he came across for the first time in his life a, a real soldier at the vaccination centre, and he was struck by just how polite and confident and this young soldier was, and was was just very complimentary about it. And I I, I do, I do totally agree with you. I think people have been, have really loved seeing soldiers involved in this. And I think it probably has reminded people of of, of just the utility uh, of the army and, and the degree to which the army gives us a reserve, a national reserve to call upon in times of crisis. And again, this goes back to your first question about the size of the army, what really worries me about the sort of trend over the last 30 years. And obviously, obviously, I hope it's a trend that doesn't continue, is that you know, nations do need an ultimate reserve and, and the armies provide that organised reserve and you can use them in all sorts of different ways. But there's the other thing is, you know, if we think about teachers um, uh, in the current pandemic and we think about um, policemen and we think about healthcare workers and they've all done, you know, amazing things, uh, etc. But they're all that they all have contracts and they all have associations and trade unions associated with them and so there are limits with the degree to which you can use those pools of of people in other words you have to get the police to volunteer to drive ambulances the army has no such contract you can do what you want with the army it's you know it represents you know 80,000 trained and disciplined and committed and selfless individuals that you can basically throw at a problem without any limits. All the way from fighting a war to running a, a vaccination centre. There are no other institutions in this land that have that are employed without a contract. In other words, it's unlimited uh, what they can do for the country, uh, it, 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 all the way up to risking their lives. And, and that's why the army is such a precious national resource, because it represents the ultimate in flexibility.
2: You almost make it sound as if the army is doing the nation a favour. I mean, it's certainly the case that it used to be 150 years ago, you, 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 we, neither of us was around then, <laughs> despite appearances. Um, 150 years ago, people used to talk about drunken soldiery. Nowadays, the drunks are the civilians. The soldiery are the one, well-behaved ones, and they've got good manners. They're well behaved, and they're basically quite quiet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I won't, I, I won't pretend for a moment that soldiers don't occasionally uh, get it wrong. But again, I've been really struck when I look back uh, at my service of just how, 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 how well behaved and how, how committed the young soldiers are today. And if I look back at Iraq, you know which was kind of probably my the final kind of part of my experience where I was really working intimately with young soldiers on the front line um their commitment uh and their their good judgment was something that really struck me and, and when i i'm often i often think about about that and what was it that what was it that takes youngsters from you know all over the country and turns them into these Confident, um, good young men and women who 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 do the right thing in very difficult circumstances, often where where their lives are at risk, and and the the thing that I would point to is is goes back to this history um, of of the sense of belonging to a a, a a regiment, a gang. You know, the army takes people in and it gives them a family called the regiment or the corps, and those regiments and corps have. History, heritage, and values, and then you inculcate those values into the individuals and it's handed down father to son uh, you know in a sort of apprenticeship model and what it means is when you put those soldiers on the streets or when you put them into harm's way, they don't want to let down their predecessors. they have a very strong sense of not wanting to let the family down, and that and that sense of obligation to kind of uphold that the higher standards and the traditions, if you like, um, helps reduce the, the occasions where people get it wrong, and it and it's deeply imbued in the army. And you know when when you know when I when I look back and and see how soldiers treated detainees, for example, in Basra, you know I was having just been in a, in an ambush or just been in a sort of three hour gunfight, we would then capture. Some um, people who' been trying to kill us, and i would I would witness young nineteen year old soldiers behave with great restraint with those detainees and it was remarkable, and it goes back to this notion of of values being inculcated into these youngsters from the day they joined the army
2: what 's your explanation for the fact that so few of them seem to want to join the army now? I mean you look at the royal regiment of Scotland, for example, it can 't even fill its own ranks
1: yeah I mean um, recruiting for the army has always historically been difficult. Um, if you go back to the, it's really, I mean, Jeremy, when the, when the lockdown is over, and, and I, I'd love to kind of get you to the National Army Museum and, and show you some of our recruiting paintings and, and, and posters from the, from the 19th uh, century. But it's very clear from the history of the army that, that recruiting has always been problematic. And I think this is, a, this is also something we could reflect on, because although the British are very proud of their army, Britain does not see itself as a militarised society, and I think for good reason. So we love having a good army, but we don't necessarily want to be in it. Um, um, and you see this in some of the diaries and that during national service as well. Um, and so the army's always struggled to recruit. Hence, the, you, know, the, you know, the Queen's shilling in the bottom of the beer glass and the endless posters persuading people to come and forget you know, adventure in the army. So the army struggling for recruits is not new. It's a perennial problem. But I do think the smaller the army becomes, the less visible it is, the less people are given the idea of the army. And and I also think that, you know, in this in this period where, uh, you know, diversity uh, and inclusion has become such an important priority, I, I you know, that is also, if you like, Spilled over into into recruiting, and I and I think this is obviously important. You know, everyone wants to have a diverse and inclusive workforce, but sometimes if you lose sight of your core constituency in that process, you will also struggle to find the numbers. And so I think that you know in the in the modern world, the army needs to uh, needs to focus you know uh, its recruiting on. You know a diverse workforce but also being very mindful of who historically has provided the bulk of the people for the army and of course it's you know it is what we would have called in the old days you know working class uh, uh families from right across the country whose sons and daughters have joined have joined the army and sometimes we under focus on those core groups at the expense of others and i think um you know, that combined with outsourcing recruiting, I think has probably caused the army quite a lot of challenges recently. And I speak as a father of a serving soldier who, who struggled through the recruiting process recently. And there were times when my son, you know, almost gave up the gave up the the will to live when trying to apply for the army, because it was just so it was tortuously difficult uh, through this sort of outsourced process to get to get into the army.
2: Why on earth did you do it? Why did I do it why, uh, why did the Army do it? Why did the Army outsource their recruiting when they didn 't need to well
1: i mean i think i mean i i i mean outsourcing was such the you know the rage you know starting starting with kind of um, you know in the 1990s it became such a kind of fashion to outsource everything and we saw this in the health service we saw it i mean we outsourced the production of our nuclear weapons i mean the you know the atomic weapons establishment is is outsourced, which is probably people probably don't realise that. But, you know, that's that's the that's the reality of 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 where the outsourcing fashion took us. So if you imagine that the outsourcing of the production of nuclear weapons is outsourced, well, outsourcing army recruiting, you know, seemingly would seem less risky. Um, but of course. Having you know, spent six years working at uh, in a consultancy, um i i where people were absolutely the most important resource the last thing the consultancy would have considered outsourcing would have been its recruiting and in an institution where people are at the heart of it outsourcing the thing that is the most important uh, the most important capability that you have which is your people is a very strange thing to do you might outsource the catering but you wouldn't outsource the recruiting so why did they do it I think there was a, probably a craze, and there was a desire to see if they could save a few, a few, you know, a few million pounds. But of course, the cost of that has been dramatic. I, I, I have to say, my what I'm hearing nowadays is that that has been largely, those issues have been largely addressed. But the damage that was caused over that decade, I think, was very was very serious. It was a question of political fashion, was it? I mean, when I look at the health service, I look at the prison service, I look at. You know research i look at um most government institutions in this country have been outsourcing for the best part of 25 years i, I think that pendulum is going to i mean just again just jeremy speaking completely as a you know um, you know um it, it just i think that's a pendulum that is going to that's going to shift the other way because i think the limits of outsourcing have been have been reached and i think people are now realizing with with things like the pandemic that certain things should not be outsourced uh, and certain things need to be done onshore and under your control. And I think there'll be a big assessment of a lot of outsourcing in the coming five years. And I suspect that will include certain things within, within the army. I mean, I, I don't know, but I'm just you know, reading the same newspapers that, that you're reading. And, and, and I, it, it, the, the level of outsourcing does trouble me. And there's no doubt about it that aspects of the army have been damaged in the last 25 years by ill-advised outsourcing.
2: Justin, thank you. Well, there you are, Justin Maciejewski, director of the National Army Museum and one of the most thoughtful soldiers or former soldiers you're likely to meet, in my experience. Now, in case, on the off chance that you don't have this in your diary already, this week is the week that, traditionally speaking, the first of the year's nightingales begin to sing in this island. So next week's guest is a nod to that fact. The folk singer Sam Lee, who loves the birds so much, he's written an entire book about them called, unsurprisingly, The Nightingale. Do join us for that, and in the meantime, I'm off to a beer garden.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag, say hello to Quince.